0: Hey y'all! I'm Stacy, and I'm Michael. And welcome to Holler Back, episode three. Today we coronavirus have- edition. <laughs> coronavirus <laughs> edition, yes. Um, today we have Dr. Douglas Sketchfield. Um, he is with the Journal of Appalachian Health, and he's going to tell us a little bit more about his work and you know his passion for Appalachia, and just talk about current happenings with COVID nineteen.
1: Yeah, thanks for being here, Dr. Scutchfield. We really appreciate it, and we look forward to our conversation today about health specifically in Appalachia and what recent news means for us. So, um, Stacey, you want to kick it off with the first question?
0: Yes, absolutely. Let me grab those really quick. Okay, um, so I should have had those pulled up, so my apologies. But, so, Dr. Scutchfield, just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to have a passion for Appalachia.
2: Glad. Well, I was I was born in Floyd County, in a coal mining camp in Wheelwright, Kentucky, uh, some substantial number of years ago, um, and I grew up in Martin, Kentucky, which was also in Floyd County, and also spent a good chunk of my life over in Hazard, uh, Kentucky. Uh, so I was kind of early early formed to, to Kentucky. And then <clears throat> when I finished medical school and my training, I went back and spent time in Moorhead, Kentucky, where I was, practiced for several years. So I had that experience uh, in Kentucky. Uh, and then when I came back to UK, there were a lot of things that uh, I did in order to develop areas of research and whatnot where there was more resources than were, quite frankly, on focusing on Appalachia. And then when I uh, had the opportunity to retire, uh, which as you probably would guess, a fairly active retirement, that I didn't feel the need necessarily to go where the money was, but where my affection was. And that uh, Appalachia had given me a great deal and I wanted to give back. And so <clears throat> I've spent a fair amount of time over the past couple of years um, trying to make uh, contributions in any way I can uh, to conversations and, and activities that support Appalachian and Appalachia development in general as well as in the, in the health arenas. So I guess that's kind of how my passion you know, and my family, and I still have property in Floyd County, and a lot of my family are still in Floyd County, so I still have connections, periodically get back there, um, you know, just to kind of... Keep my uh, credentials and certifies uh, up to speed. So, and I, I like, you know, I like and love uh, Appalachia. I like, like, love, love Appalachia for a variety of reasons. So it runs all the way from the writers to the to the art to the music to so many things that are uh, really pleasant at Appalachia and, and are frequently not thought of as being an important contributor but are I think to life and, and and life satisfaction in places like Floyd uh, County Prestonburg Pike or hazard or wherever so yeah. uh,
0: and it's something that if you grow up in it um, it's it's something that you don't realize you know I didn't really understand that I had a culture until I came to UK and kind of took Appalachian courses and and I was like, Oh yeah, this is like a, this is different from everywhere else. So, um, it's funny because I actually, I actually made macaroni and tomatoes and cooked cabbage and fried some bread the other day. And I took a picture of it. Um, and I put it on my my social media and more people than I would like to admit that I'm friends with slid up on it. And were like, what is that? And I'm like, what? <laughs> so, um,
2: Well, if you've ever been to a home where they drive shucky beans, and you don't know how good they are when they're cooked right, well, you don't understand what what that looks like and what what it could be done with. Those of us who've been there, of course, know and love it. You know, it's the nature of the beast.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and you know, you I talk about soup beans all the time and how I love them.
2: Um, But people beans and cornbread made in a skillet cast iron skillet that's the only way you can make it right cast iron skillet is key that's right and then go ahead raw onions for that for that soup beans (laughs) yeah
1: i mean another thing i think too is important i mean your contribution to the academy and the professional world and your work with the journal i think it letting people know that you're from floyd county that you're from eastern kentucky is so important because you know, a lot of times students come out with a defeatist attitude just because of the negativity that other people project on the area. And so, I just want to thank you for you know contributing and, and showing that us folks from the mountains can can get
2: out there. You know, and it's it's the interesting world. to me because there is that kind of perspective, uh, Michael. But I I'm also struck by there are some shining examples of where this perception uh, just falls flat apart. You know, I uh, I my grandparents lived in a place called, uh, well in Martin, but they lived up Ice Plant Holla and Ice Plant Holla has probably what a dozen houses on, on the portion of the Creek up by, by Beaver. And from that, from that tiny area, I came, my brother's an orthopedic surgeon in Danville was there. My uncle, uh, Scott Osborne, was, when he died, the chairman of the Department of English at Mississippi State University. Don Fraser, who was chairman of the Department of Physiology here at the UK, and has worked very, very hard in terms of bringing science to Appalachia. Two guys who were childhood friends of mine, both of whom have doctorates in clinical psychology, came from that same neck of the woods, that same little holla, and, you know, it just, it bothers me when folks don't understand that, that there are some pretty damn bright people back there. And, uh, you know, and one of the things I've discovered, it's interesting to me too, from this perspective, those of us who are from, I uh, I think have, uh, some of us, at least, I think most of us have a lot of pride in the area. And there's kind of a, a network almost of, of people and, you know, you, you automatically know they're, what they're like, what they're from, and you're going to be friends because they're from, you know, Corbin or Hazard or, or Heinemann or Pockville, you know, because you have this kind of shared culture. And I've discovered that uh, in the healthcare sector, there are folks, uh, There's it's kind of a small clustering of uh, folks here in in Kentucky. Who have an interest in Appalachia, who in health in Appalachia, who are from Appalachia, and who are actively involved in health kinds of activities. The guy uh, Jeff Howard, who was our commissioner of health here in Kentucky uh, for about three years before he left to become a White House fellow, uh, grew up in the mountains, graduated from Maria College or not Maria but Union College, uh, uh, an undergraduate before he went to med school at the University of Louisville, and. God loving me, he still doesn't have an accent. You know, he's, he talks he's patois. Um, the woman who succeeded him as the Commissioner of Health for a period of time was Angela Derringer, who was born and raised in, in Paintsville, Kentucky. And so the hey, two lived
1: in Johnson County?
2: But, you know, got to meet Scotty Day, who was the chairman of pediatrics here at UK. And he's from down in Leatherwood. Well, hell, you know, it was like old home week when the four of us got <laughs> together. You know, we just laughed oh. and carried on. But there was a camaraderie and a sense of uh, fellowship and belonging, and part of a fraternity that understood and and worked with uh, and enjoyed uh, the relationships they had with Appalachia and the character of Appalachia.
1: Yeah, so I mean, obviously, you're well-connected to the the health uh, community, especially those from Appalachia. And so this transitions pretty great into our next question. So we've seen this phenomena of folks fleeing COVID-19 focus areas, thinking of New York, York, thinking of just populated cities, and they're coming to Appalachia to kind of escape the packedness of of these big places. Um, And this is causing a lot of problems. And so we just wanted to know what you and your colleagues have thought um, about this and how it's impacting health and wellness here in Appalachia.
2: Well, clearly that's, you know, on everybody's mind at these points in time and as well it should be. Uh, My training, my initial training was in epidemiology. So I'm watching this whole thing with, as you might imagine, a great deal of satisfaction and uh, uh, having some uh, intellectual capacity to deal with it and to watch it being played out. Uh, It's a fascinating, uh, probably not the right word, but uh, interesting uh, to those of us who crack disease patterns and try to figure out what's going on with them. Uh, let me say at the outset that uh, what, if, if you want to, the Appalachian Regional Commission, or yeah, ARC, has made available to us at the Journal a uh, project that they recently have done, which shows you a map of the distribution of, of uh, coronavirus infections in Appalachia in the ARC defined area. And they also have a, uh, uh, an app, basically a uh, uh, capacity for you to drill down into that map to find out what's going on in various areas. And we've taken that with ARC's permission and just put it on the front page of our website so that anybody who's interested in what's going on with, with the virus in Appalachia can very quickly get to that material from ARC with the map and the related uh, capacity to learn more about uh, what's going on with, uh, with the virus there. It's interesting to me, if you look at the map, uh, right now we've been pretty well uh, uh, insulated from the amount of infections that we've seen. Uh, the worst situations that are happening are in, in urban communities. So the few urban communities like Pittsburgh uh, that are in the Appalachia ARC region are the places where we've had a fair amount of cases where the, where the case rate is, is higher, which reflects what you would guess. And that is the majority of is rural, which means that you, you don't have a whole heck of a lot of contact with a whole heck of a lot more people than you do in an urban area uh, where you, you just you don't have any other option. So as a consequence, its, it's uh, progression in Appalachia has been slower, it's there uh, but it's not there like it is in Pittsburgh or New York City or, or Seattle or San Francisco uh, uh, where the, uh, the rates are so higher because of the uh, interaction, it's a direct spread person to person Virus, respiratory virus as a respiratory virus and, and that just not as, as bad in Appalachia as it is you know that chance for meeting people as it is in in uh, uh, urban areas so having said that I think that there's a there's a, a, a kind of a downside and that is traditionally and it continues to be true that Appalachia doesn't have the health resources of a lot of other areas that is to say that we don't have the doctors and the hospital beds and whatnot, uh, that is characteristic of, of urban areas. So that in a lot of rural Appalachia, it, to get to care requires transportation. And as you're well aware, there's transportation problems surrounding getting to care for uh, for folks in Appalachia. Uh, there are other issues like that in terms of a shortage of, of resources that need to be available to people who, in fact, develop and have the virus, like our colleagues and and family in in Appalachia. So I think those are the two two issues. One is the slower coming of the cases of uh, of, uh, COVID-19 to uh, the rest of the urban areas. The second thing is the difficulty associated with having resources available to manage the disease as it obviously, it'll begin to pack Appalachia, impact Appalachia. The other thing, of course, is that you're going to have a... Uh, it's going to spread out. It's still going to have the same number of susceptibles. It's just that it may strike later in the mountains than it did in the urban areas. And uh, if it appears as it appears, uh, we, may, we may in fact have what's called a second wave, which is all those people who are infected now infect somebody else and then you're gonna get another wave of infections. And that wave may be larger in Appalachia as in point of fact they, the number of people who are susceptible to getting the disease falls in urban areas, but increases in the rural areas like Appalachia.
0: Yeah, and I think that um, I believe it, it may be China that is, it's some Asian country um, that is experiencing um, a second wave actually. So, um, yeah, you kind of went ahead and answered. The next question is just, you know, are healthcare professionals there prepared to combat an at- outbreak, and do we have enough resources? Um, and while you answered that, I think it's also really important to note that thank God for Andy Bashir. <laughs> um, yeah. <so laughs> the rock
2: star of, uh, of COVID nineteen. <laughs> My wife and I were off. having. A- yeah, my wife and I were having conversation about what does a man do for an encore? Run for president? <laughs> yeah,
1: he's he's set up for whatever office he wants to hold. I think you got it, Red
2: Ryder. I don't think there's any question about that. It's just absolutely amazing what he's done, and that's wonderful. God, if we had chief executive officers of state like him across the across the nation, we would, you know, we'd be so far ahead of this epidemic, uh, you know. But his he's he's just. Absolutely fantastic. And then the second thing is, you know, coming back to your question, Stacey, yeah, I think, you know, obviously we have a shortage of capacity, we have a shortage of beds, we have a shortage of physicians, we have a shortage of, you know, nurses, whatever. Uh, and so that, you know, we are going to be have to wrestle with that particular problem, uh, but <coughs> understand that, that if we know or recognize there's a potential in a second wave, then we could go ahead and do that somehow, or setting up capacity, and we're already ramping up capacity in a variety of areas, a classic one is telemetry, and tele- telemedicine, which could break down those kinds of barriers of time and space, so that you may not need to catch the, the bus to get to Lexington to be seen by the doctor, you know, kind of thing, that uh, little buses that run from from Appalachia into into the, the medical center, and and we I, the physicians who are out there are superlative, and there's some some really good programs. Uh, you know, I pull them to some degree of uh, uh, pride, I guess, in the characteristics of some of our community mental you know, our community health centers in Appalachia, the Big Sandy, uh, the Mountain care Center, uh, the folks in. Uh, primary plus up in the Flemingsburg area uh, and, and Maysville area uh, you know, are, are on top of this and are supported and are quickly acquiring the capacity, I think, to deal intellectually with the issue because they'll have the advantage of what we have learned early on in the epidemic that is now being transmitted to those who are going to be dealing with kind of this second wave or the tail end of the first wave as the number of susceptibles burn out in the the urban areas, but you still have susceptibles left in the rural areas because there's not been as much of a case rate there as there has been in urban areas. So I think, you know, to, to rural Appalachia's advantage in that it's able to prepare better both intellectually in terms of resources that are available to it and thinking about how to deal with the problems and being able to develop those solutions before the epidemic hits full force in those areas where we potentially could see it, if that makes sense.
1: And I just had one follow-up. I mean, you know, we've talked about how we've been somewhat insulated and, and just due to the geographic nature of Appalachia, that's that's been a trend in the past. And so we see a lot of people who, you know, see the, the surging numbers in those urban areas and in these metropolitan centers, and then they see, you know, comparatively speaking, are relatively low numbers. And so I think there's a, a myth of, of complete insulation from this and people are saying, oh, you know, we're not gonna be affected or they're not really practicing social distancing as as strictly as they should. So what would you offer as, you know, advice to folks who think that this isn't gonna affect them?
2: It's going to. Sooner or later, it's gonna be a, you know, that the, the, the disease will burn because we don't have a vaccine, because we don't have a treatment until all the susceptibles have been infected. I mean, that's just the nature of the beast. So if you're preserved at the front end because of some of the characteristics, geographic, whatever, then you're gonna you know, catch it downstream. Well, know that, know what works. We learn what works, pay attention to what works, and then hopefully what you could do is damper down even in the face of the susceptibles, the transmission of the disease so that we can have actually have a decreased curve that we're going to see even as a second wave, which I think we're going to have anyway, but the further we can damp it down, the better we off we are. And we're learning how to dampen it down in our experience now in urban areas of the nation, New York, San Francisco, Seattle, whatever. So let's learn those lessons and transmit them, or you know, and utilize them in terms of uh, translating into use in the rural areas to be able to try to make an impact on that. And I think rural Appalachia is a classic example of that.
1: Yeah, and I think that's that's a really important lens to look at this through. Is that you know we may seem insulated now, but like you said, it's going to spread inevitably. But the the really brilliant part of this is we do have that buffer window that we can get prepared and we can. You know, be proactive about things and not relax our social distancing or relax our preparedness, but double down on it because we're getting this—you know—grace period of, of a little bit of a buffer. And so, I think just any folks who are listening, you know, heed this <laughs> warning if you can, because it's like Dr. Scutchfield said, it's it's inevitably going to be our our doorstep soon. But we got some time now to to hunker down and get prepared. And so, that's that's the most important thing to take out of this
2: exactly Michael and uh, you're dead on with that so you know fine but let's let's maintain our capacity to keep down our current and take advantage of what we've learned and how to intervene with the epidemic to decrease it in the rural areas like Appalachia. Yeah
0: and I think we're we're especially blessed in Appalachia um, because like Andy said, um, he said, social distancing isn't necessarily social isolation. So you can still um, go outside and enjoy nature, you know, um, six feet away from other people. If you have to go with other people, ideally you'd go alone, but you know, we have a lot of beautiful scenery and things like that um, in Appalachian that gives people a kind of a good outlet for um, vitamin D and some good, some good views.
2: Yeah, I don't think there's any question about that, I, you know, and I, well, the other comment I would make is that one of the things that's not peculiar to Appalachia, but certainly is, I think, very true in Appalachia, is that uh, there's an affection for each other, planishness, maybe come from the old Scotch-Irish clans or whatever, but there's, there's a real sense of family, you know, that, that sense of place and whatnot that's there, which means that there's a social connectedness in Appalachia, with family and and friends that uh, we don't see in a lot of other places, and that in and of itself, in terms of social networks and supportive activities and whatnot, and by its nature, has seemed to influence the lack of or uh, increase in the incidence of disease. So that the extent that which we began to 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 uh, apply to further enhance our uh, interrelationships in Appalachia and our, our affection and care for family and friends and those of us who share that kind of Appalachian heritage uh, provides a protective effect, quite frankly, too. Uh, and and even in the case of uh, paying or getting the diagnosis, it improves the possibility the individual will be able to successfully deal with the, with the virus. So those are important things too. I don't just the whole notion of social capital and its influence on disease becomes very important in my judgment.
0: Yeah. So, um, I think that, you know, I'm kind of jumping around on the questions here, but uh, a good one to touch on next is, you know, obviously the the pandemic is going to affect health and wellness in Appalachia, but it's also going to affect the economy. And so uh, we're wondering if you have any kind of like opinions or, you know, predictions on what will happen to the economy in Appalachia and how well or how closely health and wellness is related to the economy.
2: i, it, I say at the outset, health and wellness and, and economic development are inexorably tried, tried, Uh, you know, am I sick because I'm poor or because I'm sick? It is probably both. It should be neither and if you look consistently at the data you know those things that are associated with uh, lower socioeconomic status uh jobs education those sorts of things are are areas where we traditionally had problems in appalachia with uh, dealing with and so those are going to influence i mean you know it's 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 going to impact the economy in, in appalachia it just has to having said that. Uh, Jared Arnett, who you guys probably know, runs SOAR, uh, shipping our Appalachia region down in Pikeville, just let out a, uh, he had a, a blast earlier this week or early late last week, uh, where he surveyed the, the businesses, the small businesses that SOAR had been involved with helping to set up in Appalachia. All were suffering from the virus, but none of them planned on discontinuing their business. That they were prepared to continue to, to uh, move forward with the development of their small billet business capacity. Now, albeit that's obviously a, a kind of strange sample because it's people who have come to SOAR looking for help with the further enhancement and development of their uh, re- retail or business capacity. And so those are folks that uh, are obviously diligent. They're obviously taking advantage of the resources that are available uh, through SOAR and you know are likely to be optimist for Appalachia in general uh so take it with a grain of salt but nevertheless i think it's, it's true that uh, we're going to have an economic consequence. and again that uh we know that economics socioeconomic status income is directly related to health so that the poorer people are going to get sicker uh, and it just it is the way it is and anything we can do to increase the jobs, the education, which are inexorably tied together, to employment and work, the better we're going to be suc- at successful in, in controlling disease. There's a wonderful piece of work that was done by a friend of mine named Steve, Steve Wolf from Virginia, where he talks about if everybody held the health of the educated, what would happen to health status in the United States? and in Appalachia areas. And it just, it's remarkable when you take the look at the curves that suggest how you can improve education and its impact on health, as opposed to even more investment in medical kinds of stuff. And education far outstrips the capacity of, of making a contribution to health in Appalachia, Kentucky than does uh, trying to improve medical uh, status, there's medical technology and medical technology development going on. Mm-hmm. So that, you know, they're excellently tied. And the extent to which we can address education problems in Appalachia, economic problems in Appalachia, we're going to improve the health of Appalachia. The more you improve the health of the Appalachia, the more likely you are to have a healthy workforce. If you have a healthy workforce, you're likely to have people who are interested in locating there to take advantage of labor that is both reasonably uh, uh, well-educated and and is uh, a health and so those are actually tried again to to economic development so there's an integral relationship that occurs between all of those kinds of what's called the social determinants of health and health status and Appalachia demonstrates that beautifully in terms of how it's uh, how it it functions and its works.
1: Yeah, and I think that's super important for people to realize. As you know, we move forward, and and especially related to this, you know, this uh, this pandemic is that you know being proactive about you know you know keeping distance and and being healthy and taking all the right precautions isn't just an immediate you know payout. You know, you might not get sick, but it's also going to help preserve. You know, the economic integrity of the area. And so I think a lot of times people are, are, are short sighted and and especially due to worry. You know, it's easy to do, but, you know, keeping that bigger picture and that long term, you know, objective of, of sustaining the economy and, and keeping ourselves not just healthy, but keeping the area viable. Because there's been a lot of work done in the past, you know, 10, 15, 20 years to, to really intentionally work and develop. And, and so I think, you know, we got to be smart about keeping ourselves healthy and, and contributing, you know, that way. But the next question we have, you know, we looked through some of your work um, and and stuff in the journal, and we came across uh, the Launch Collaborative, and we thought it was really interesting. And we wanted to just ask you uh, to give us a little info about that and to let our listeners know what that uh, project looks like.
2: It's an interesting project. Uh, project Launch came in large measure as the result of the, the moonshot stuff. That Obama talked about late in his administration, where they were going to try to use the moonshot analogy to focus on cancer. Um, one and two, there's there's substantial data that shows a that there's an increase in cancer incidence uh, in Appalachia, uh, and and associated with the poverty and economic deprivation and whatnot. Uh, one and and two that uh There was potential by that declension to look at alternate ways to engage uh, rural communities, rural communities in programs and activities that would improve their cancer uh, death rate, mortality, morbidity rates, and you know, in that Appalachia suffers a shortage of, of medical personnel, health-related personnel and activities. It also is an area that doesn't have have ex- and broadband in many of the access in many of the areas, uh, in rural areas. So two things that have been a problem around cancer is those patients from rural areas are less likely to have access to medical care to diagnose and treat uh, that. And uh, they have also lack of access to broadband and and uh, and IT capacity. That being the case, the National Cancer Institute actually began to think about how they could deal with the issue of rural America and the issue of the importance of broadband and dealing of cancer in rural areas. And they developed a relationship with the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, where there was an effort on the two of them to combine and think about how they could go about the process of using IT to make a difference in diagnosis, treatment, and and management and rehabilitation of patients with cancer. Uh, They they then pulled in some other interesting partners, Amgen, uh, the University of California, San Diego, uh, which I know well because I was in in California for a number of years, in San Diego for a number of years, has an engineering design studio. And as a part of that, it has kind of a boutique operation where one of my colleagues has been working with the issue of how to take advantage of IT capacity in terms of health promotion disease prevention. And has built that into their medical design capacity at the College of Engineering there at UCSD. And then Markey Cancer Center, uh, which they turn to saying, you're one of the uh, NIH-designated cancer centers. You're doing good work with epidemiology and outreach, which we are. Uh, we would be interested in partnering with you to look at how we go about the process of facilitating people's access to using broadband to prevention, treatment, rehabilitation, whatever, of cancer. And so thus began Project Launch. And I can't remember right now what the, the acronym stands for, but the notion is to go into Appalachia, Kentucky, and to work with the folks in Appalachia who have cancer, find out what we can best do and use uh, broadband and it for in the prevention treatment rehabilitation of patients with cancer and uh, they just started we've just started that project i'm not integral to the to the project itself but i know you know uh, obviously it, it's important to me and i've been a part of it ever since they announced the project because of the uh, the implications, I think, for Appalachia and Appalachia health. But uh, we're we're now at the point where we have done a fair amount of ethnographic and community development and community engagement efforts. Uh, as you're well aware, we have some real centers of, of support and excellence in Appalachia, Kentucky. Uh, for example, the Center for Rural Health, not in Hazard, Fran feltner and her operation, and the folks at St. Clair Medical Center uh, in Morehead, which have. You know, both of those areas and the relationships that we've enjoyed with our colleagues at the University of Pikeville with the, the osteopathic school there. Uh, so there's 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 a, a relationship that's already been built. And so we're at the point of doing that initial community and development, looking and listening to people about what their problems and issues are, and then thinking about how we can develop IT solutions to address those. And given What's happened with the broadband we've seen here in Kentucky, with the Wired Kentucky activity, which God loving Congressman Rogers has been an incredible uh, advocate for and supporter of utilizing the notion of developing the broadband capacity in Appalachia to use for just this kind of situation where we are able to make substantial inroads in trying to improve the experience of rural areas with cancer. And this is going to be a a real uh, bottom up, all hands, look at just how we can use IT to make that difference. They, Interestingly enough, because of my involvement in part, they've turned to us at the Journal Journal of Appalachia Health to say, would you all be the mechanism we could use for dissemination of a lot of the results of the research that we have got going on in Appalachia with this project launch initiative? Of course, I was delighted. I mean, you know, this is, uh, couldn't, couldn't make me happier from the perspective of the journal uh, because it obviously enhances the journal. At the same time, it gives them at the National Cancer Institute, FCC, and in this partnership, Markey, uh, to have access to a, a ready-made uh, mechanism for disseminating the results of all of this in Appalachia. So we're at the point where we've just written the the April – issue of the journal will have the editorial announcing the relationship between Project uh, LAUNCH and the Journal of Appalachia Health. And a couple of the early articles that we have accepted from the LAUNCH perspective, who will, which will be actually a part of the Journal of Appalachia Health in the April issue, which is just forthcoming uh, within the next two or three weeks.
0: Awesome. Um, I, I, I know you shouted out hazard in the Center for rural health there. I don't know if I've already told you this, but I'm from Hazard. So um, that's awesome to hear. And, you know, we have a lot of very well-trained healthcare professionals, and I'm very, very proud of, especially how, because, you know, our city has come a long way. Um, We're labeled the queen city of the mountains, but we kind of fell behind a little bit. Um, But, you know, especially with this whole pandemic, um, I'm really proud of how they're responding to it. And um, I think we just got our fourth confirmed case of COVID-19, but um, really, really proud of how they're, they're handling that. Um, And yeah, that's especially interesting. The launch collaborative, I saw that on your website, um, which is a great segue into the next thing, you know, we kind of want to give our guest hosts a little bit of a platform to, you know plug. Your website, maybe, you know, talk a little bit more about your most impactful articles or, you know, just kind of give you a moment to, um, and especially because, as you know, you're supposed to speak at ASA 2020, and so maybe if you want to touch a little bit on, rest in peace, that was going to be such a fun conference, but, um, and we're all pretty bummed about the cancellation of that, but we you know, we have to look at the, the bigger picture. So if you want to touch a little bit on what you were going to say there, talk about um, your website, your journal, um, that'd be awesome.
2: Well, thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to do that, Stacey. Uh, I was struck when I retired by the fact that there was no place that if someone was really interested in Appalachia Health to go to, in terms of an ongoing source of information, knowledge and whatnot about health in Appalachia, Kentucky. And that's been on my mind actually for several years. I've I've been involved with journal editing for a long time. I edited uh, American Journal of Preventive Medicine. I've edited uh, uh, a California physician while I was in California. Uh, I was on the editorial board and uh, was the editor of the American Journal of Preventive Medicine. Uh, I was on the editorial board of the American Journal of Public Health. So I, I have a great belief in uh, dissemination of and implementation of, of news knowledge and trying to increase the speed with which things move from the research from research to practice. We can't, you know, the average length of time from the discovery of something that can improve health until its application is generally 17 years. Which you can't tolerate that. Uh, we've got to get a, a more rapid mechanism for getting science to practice. Um, that being the case, when I had the opportunity, I decided, well, heck, the thing to do is have a journal of Appalachia Health, where we have a journal which provides the opportunity for things like lunch to have access to a ready made uh, population of readers. The other thing is that. I've I wrestled for years with problems of kind of a paywall, if you will, to scientific information. If I want scientific information, I can subscribe subscribe to the journal or I can go to uh, PubMed, but if I do that or to the journal site to get the article, it's important, but I have to pay for it. Uh, and that's been an obstacle, obviously, in a variety of different ways of, uh, to utilization of, of information, medical information. So I went to Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, and I've had some serious experience with RWJ. i had a, some major grants from them. I ran the National Coordinating Center for Public Health Services Research at UK at one point in time, and was, uh, was very well supported by RWJ, and asked them if they'd be interested in help, being helpful to us as we set up a journal to deal with uh, uh, Appalachian Health and they agreed to do that so we've had the support and and backing of the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation which is incredibly helpful which has allowed for us to create a journal that is online open access that is free to publish in for the authors and free for you to get as a subscriber and so it's there's no paywall between that information and your activity not only that because it's an electronic online journal that means that things are instantaneous. It doesn't take us months to get from where we've got the complete journal put together till it actually comes out in paper. Uh, we don't have that lifetime. We can we can bypass that and get things electronically out a heck of a lot sooner. Uh, we have begun to publish, I think, some things that are, are of substantial interest. And, I comment on that, but obviously one of the things you, Stacy, and Mike have clearly pointed out is the relationship between socioeconomic uh, status and health. But, you know, this is an area where we've tried to look at the social determinants of health. What are those things in the environment, the built environment, the social environment, uh, that, that influence health and how can we intervene effectively with those to improve health status. So looking at evidence-driven social determinants downstream or upstream uh, impacts of public health, how can we give those highlight uh, in the journal? So we're consistently looking for that kind of activity, which tied into ASA 2020 really quite well, in that a lot of the medical uh, work, medical research work involves utilizing social science tools that come from sociology anthropology those sorts of things and and applying them in a health situation well uh, the liberal arts which is ASA 2020s kind of background uh, gave us the opportunity to go to those people who developed those models that we use in medical research and talk to them about how it could be helpful to further facilitate their effort uh, to develop the the intellectual models of from sociology, anthropology, economics, whatever, that have implications for health, and how we can then make that translation into uh, the health literature so that the people who are concerned with health can take advantage of these new paradigms developed by the social sciences and and test them. And one of the things that we can do is provide impaired data about the new development of uh, paradigms in those kind of social scientists, which we can then use to further refine the models which allow us to be more successful with the implementation of evidence-based interventions for health particularly around social determinants so that's an area where we were actively involved with one of the first uh, papers that in point of fact we did focused on just that i mentioned my colleague Steve Wolf and some of the work he'd been doing on social determinants, he wrote a very, very nice article, which has gotten actually the most downloads of any of the articles we've published on the issue of social determinants of health in Appalachia. Uh, The other thing that's been interesting is that uh, you may well know there was a, there was an article by a a couple of economists at Princeton who pointed out a problem with uh, that we're seeing nationally. And that is, there's been a decrease in the life expectancy, particularly of of working class or working age males and working class males. Uh, And that these people, when they began to look at why we've had uh, those decline or those rising mortality rates, have discovered they're related to three things. They're related to to opioids, they're related to alcohol, and they're related to suicide. And they call those the deaths of despair. Uh, One of the things one of our colleagues has done, Michael Mate, at the uh, National Research Opinion Center at the University of Chicago, is to look at those deaths of despair in Appalachia. And sure enough, we have more deaths of despair than is true nationally. Uh, and then the question becomes, why are that, why is that the case? And, uh, suggesting that there's substantial mental components to some of the physical issues that we're dealing with, which to a certain extent we knew, certainly lays it out in an empirical basis. So the article that that Mike wrote about deaths of despair in Appalachia, uh, was also one that received a lot of visibility in terms of, uh, what we're seeing in Appalachia. Uh, we're putting out a call in this April issue. We know we're going to get COVID, uh, COVID uh, uh, papers. I mean, that's just by the name of the beast. But we're putting out a call in in, in the April issue for uh, people who would like to uh, send us research related to opioids. that we're interested, of course, in trying to do those. Things. Again, looking at uh, evidence-based interventions and a better understanding of the Bases for the kind of experience we saw in Appalachia and had continued to with, uh, with the uh, drug abuse problems. Probably, probably one of the comments I make an aside, if you'll allow me to address uh, just a minute, is to observe that the deaths of despair uh, really represent uh, an important problem in Appalachia. Uh, and that is the impact of, uh, of depression, mental illness and whatnot on uh, physical health. And one, and two, that we focused on opioids, but I'm not sure we need to be focusing on, to, uh, only on opioids because what we're concerned about is not necessarily with the drug, but with the behavior that prompts the drug, the addiction. So fine, if we control uh, Opiates. Guess what? We are a rise in meth. If we do both opioids and meth, then we're going to rise in cocaine or whatever heroin. Right. Uh, so it's not, you know, if you're going to go in and try to deal with it, you're not going to be able to treat yourself out of this epidemic. Uh, you're you going to have to figure out why we've got the epidemic, and why we have these deaths, despair, a substantial portion of which, obviously related to the opioid uh, uh, overdose problem and recognize that it's a systemic problem and not one to a peculiar drug. Drug make any difference. The behavior of the individual who takes the drug makes a difference. Uh, and our ability to highlight some of that, we want to try to do in the journal and in, in some of our forthcoming issues over the next uh, three to six months. Obviously, again, we're anxious to get manuscripts on, on the COVID problem, uh, and probably will. Talking with one of my colleagues at JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association, he was saying he was, they were frankly inundated with carotid uh, um, articles particles at JAMA and that they had to pick and choose them very, very carefully. Like, you know, I, I understand that very well.
1: All right, Dr. Schlesfield, we just wanted to, again, thank you so much for your time and your thoughtfulness, but most of all, just for your contributions to Appalachia and, and your heart for for the place that we call home. Um, but we just wanted to leave the podcast with a question of, you know, if you had one thing to tell listeners about the most important thing about health and wellness as it relates to Appalachia, it's a big question, um, but what would what would that advice or that, I guess that parting wisdom be?
2: I suppose a parting shot would be let's get engaged in Appalachia, let's think about how we can make Appalachia better. How can we, uh, and you and me and everybody else, make a contribution to economic development, to health and wellness, to all of those things, and and to to improve the health and wellness that we see in Appalachia, Kentucky. But also to recognize the the importance of the strengths that exist in Appalachia, the assets that exist in Appalachia, and how important those assets are to the development of the capacity in Appalachia, and how to take advantage of those assets in in trying to deal with both the economic development as well as the issues of health and wellness. So that, you know, be involved, get engaged, learn what you can learn about health, wellness, any of these other areas, make a contribution, uh, how do you do that? You know, don't leave Appalachia, <laughs> stay in Appalachia, go back to Appalachia with the knowledge and capacity you, you've got. Make a difference. Uh, that's my advice and suggestion and kind of the parting shot that I would, that I would give you.
0: Yeah, it's definitely our own, um, special little corner of the world. I'd have to agree. Um, again, just thank you so much for your time and being um, patient as we've shifted everything to um, online and remote working, um, and then now is the point in the show where we kind of do our little ending jingle, Michael. Um, <laughs> so we just say, "In the meantime, I'm Stacy,
1: and I'm Michael, and, we'll and we'll all are at you <laughs> harder to do over Zoom.
0: Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's really hard to do." Um, but thank you, Dr. Sketchfield, and I'm sure we'll be in touch.
2: All right. Thank you very much for the opportunity to be with you today. It's been a pleasure, and a delight. Look forward to being helpful to you in any way I can possibly be. Again, thanks.
0: Thank. You. Take care. Stay safe.